And we're going to look at Romans 11, verse 7, down to verse 33. Romans 11, 7, down to verse 33. And before we read it, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless the reading and preaching of his word this morning. Father, again, we look to you and we acknowledge that unless you build the house, we labor in vain who build it. Unless you guard the city, we stay awake in vain. Scarcely have we sowed and planted. And so, our God, we pray that you would send your word out to accomplish all of your purposes. We pray that you would give us a sense of your majesty, that you would give us a sight of the excellency and beauty and sweetness of the Lord Jesus that even as we consider this difficult part of your word, you would give us understanding, that you would open our eyes, and that we would hear the voice of Christ, and that we would see him as the Savior that he is for our souls. Lord Jesus, we call on you to help us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Romans 11, beginning in verse 7. And Paul, taking up that question, has God rejected his people? That's the big question. Obviously, he's asking about the Old Covenant Church, Old Covenant Israel, who for many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years were in covenant with God, and yet now the gospel has gone to the Gentiles, and the Apostle Paul himself, a Jew, has become the Apostle to the Gentiles, and he has taken on all those objections, all the Israelite objections from unbelieving Jews who didn't believe in the Lord Jesus. Now he's turning his attention to the Gentile congregation, which is actually a larger Number Claudius had expelled most of the Jews from Rome about five years previous to the writing of this letter, and so he is now addressing the mass of the Gentile converts who had turned to the Lord Jesus. And he says in verse 7, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if the trespass means riches for the world and if their future means riches for the Gentile, how much more will their full number, their fullness mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle, to the Gentiles I magnify my ministry, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the lump whole. And if the root is holy, so are the branches." But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note, then, the kindness and severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. If you were cut from what 
Is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. It might also be read, a hardening has come upon part of Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of the forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things? To him be glory forever. Amen. Well, in 2008, Sam Van Aken, he's a professor at Syracuse University, walked by an orchard that had over 200 pieces of fruit on trees growing on that orchard, and Van Aken um, saw that the orchard had been neglected, it had been abandoned, and so he purchased that property, and he started off on a project that really no one had ever done before. Van Aken took one single fruit tree, and he began to graft in other fruit-bearing trees, stone fruit, fruit with the stone in the middle of it and the seed in the stone. And today, when it's blossoming, you'll see a tree that has pink and white and red. You've never seen anything like it. It looks fake. It looks photoshopped. And when that tree bears fruit, it is now called the tree of 40 fruits. And it bears at the same time 40 different fruits, peaches and, and uh, almonds, and every kind of stone fruit imaginable. And it was an experiment, and no one had done anything like it, and now this tree is being talked about everywhere, and people are saying, can world hunger be solved by this single tree? And oh, the things we can do. And it took me back when I was a boy, and I thought about um, my fascination with tree grafting. It was a short stage. I don't know why I was so fascinated, but there was a fascination that you could take something that didn't belong in this tree and you could graft it in and it become part of it and it become very much part of the same tree into which you grafted it. And Paul is going to use that illustration to say that Gentiles, that's us, who have believed in Jesus, have been grafted into the tree, which is God's covenantal dealings, promises to Abraham fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and we have become part of the new Israel. We who once were far off have been brought near. There's one tree. This is not replacement theology. In fact, Paul will fight against something that he sees as a danger called replacement theology, that somehow the Gentiles thought that they replaced the Jews. This is inclusion theology. The image of the tree, the glorious tree that God is is building for himself and engrafting the branches in. He breaks them off, he grafts them in, and he is making this glorious new tree. He's, as Paul has said everywhere in the epistles, that in Christ Jesus, he is making one new man from the two. 
He is taking Jew and Gentile, the only division the world knew until the coming of Christ, and he is bringing together in one all those who believe in the Lord Jesus. And we come this morning to this very difficult portion of God's word, and what I want us to see is that there's something mysterious about this. There's something mysterious about the tree of 40 fruits. When you see this tree, it it looks mysterious. There's a wonder about it. There's something mysterious about what God is doing in the salvation of his people and how he's doing it. And in fact, notice that Paul tells us in verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Now, when he says mystery, it doesn't mean that it's a riddle to be solved. He means that it was something that God hid from ages and generations. It was something that God kept back, but now he's revealed, and now he wants you to understand, and now he wants your minds open so that you can see all of the mystery that he's talking about. And it's interesting. Everywhere else that the Apostle Paul talks about the mystery, everywhere else in every other letter that he writes to every other church that, to whom he writes, it is always without fail the mystery that God is making one new man out of two, Jew and Gentile, in Christ Jesus. And yet Paul has this particular pastoral reason for writing the section that he's writing. And as I noted already, Paul is turning his attention to Gentiles who might look at how most of Israel has rejected the Lord Jesus, and Paul's talked about how he hasn't rejected them. I'm an Israelite. I was one of the elect. He hasn't cast off his promises to Old Covenant Israel. And yet the Gentiles might say, but Paul, besides you, we don't see multitudes coming in, and, and maybe God's replaced Israel with us. Maybe we're the new new covenant people. We're, the, we're a new tree. We're a different tree. He has a different plan. This is a new plan for us. And so Everything that Paul's writing is Paul answering the question, has God cast off his people? And he's answering that question with an emphatic no. And then in this section, he is giving us the strategy of God saving Jew and Gentile in Christ. He's giving us his mysterious strategy. And he does that under two heads. He does it first by giving us the process of God's mysterious strategy And then secondly, he gives us the purpose of God's mysterious strategy. We'll notice in verse 7 to verse 10, Paul tells us that in the process of God's strategy, the first thing that he does is that he hardens Israel. Now, that's important because in chapter 9, it said that God hardened Pharaoh. And it's the same section, the same book, the same author. Paul is obviously drawing off of that. And Paul is doing what he does everywhere to go back and to prove that in this process of God gathering together Jew and Gentile in Christ and bringing together all of his people in in the gospel age, that in this process, the first step is that Israel was hardened. And Paul tells us that. Notice verse 7, he says, what then? Did Israel fail to obtain what it was seeking? The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. And then he cites two Old Testament passages one out of Isaiah and one out of Psalm 69. And he tells them that they should have been able to tell that that was what God was going to do in this, in this process. This process was not a new process. God didn't wake up and decide, I'm going to do something different. This was foretold in the prophets. It was foretold in the Psalms. Notice that Paul In his first citation, quoting the Old Testament, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. Jesus will tell the Jews of his day who are rejecting him, well did Isaiah say, 
He will blind your eyes. He will harden your hearts. They were looking at the Savior. They saw him with their physical eyes, and he said, your spiritual eyes have been blinded so that you will not see, you will not hear. The Pharisees and the scribes and the rulers of Israel could not get the parables. Jesus said, for this reason I speak in parables. It's seeing they will not see, hearing they will not hear. Jesus was a Jew. This is not anti-Semitism. He is God over all, and he comes and he says, you will not see, you will not hear, you will not understand. And it seems mean. It seems harsh until Paul tells us they were hardened because of unbelief. It was a judicial hardening. It's one of the most frightening things in the Bible. As Voss said, that irretrievable hardening is often the punishment for the sin of hardening your own heart, that God gives them over, Romans 1. God gives men over. He gives nations over. Israel, in the Old Testament, they wanted their own desires, so God sent them quail, it says, until it came out their noses. He sent a plague. He gave them what they wanted. He does that to you and me if we want sin. You know, God is not mocked. I think even the warning later in here where he says, don't be proud, because he can cut you off too, is guard your mind and your heart against pride, self-righteousness, wanting your own desires, thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. And so Isaiah tells us down to this very day, God would give the spirit of hardening. Then verse, verse 9, even David, mar- remarkable that King David even says this about some of his own people. He's king of Israel, and he says about unbelieving Israel, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend back, bend their backs forever. And so there's a hardening in that first process, and then the process continues. And as God is, is that great cultivator, he is that great cultivator of the tree that we're, we're about to hear about. He says the first process is that some are broken off, some are hardened. Some are given over because of their unbelief. And then notice what Paul says in verse 11. I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? And so the question is, is it irretrievable? Is, does this mean that all of Israel has been given over to unbelief forever? And Paul says, by no means. Now, he doesn't say, God's going to save all these Jews at the end of time. He never says that in any verse in this chapter. That may be a shock to you. Nowhere is there a verse that says, did they fall that they might fall forever? Nope. God's going to save all of them. But now he begins this process. Remember, Paul's writing this at a time when he was interacting with loads of old covenant Israel in the first century. And now he says, notice, he says, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel Jealous, And so now he says, salvation's come to the Gentiles. Remember in the book of Acts, Paul's going through and he's preaching and he's preaching to Jews and he's preaching to Jews and he's preaching to Jews and they're rejecting the gospel and they're running him out city to city. And then he says, fine, since you show yourself unworthy for the gospel, I'm going to the Gentiles. And that's the flow of Acts. And the rest of Acts is Paul going to the Gentiles. And that was God's plan. You know, there's this remarkable typology in the Old Testament. Jesus said that Jonah was a type of him. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days, three nights, so the Son of Man should be in, in the earth. Three days, three nights, death, resurrection. And where does Jonah go when he's resurrected? To the Gentiles. 
There's a foreshadowing. He went to Nineveh in the Old Testament. It was showing what the plan was, that salvation was going to come to us. You know, we're the coastlands. Never, ever, ever get so comfortable in your church, wherever you are, and forget that in light of all of redemptive history, the only reason we are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ is because God promised to send the gospel to the nations, that by virtue of Christ coming to Israel, he would then bless the nations. The promise to Abraham was that he would bless the nations, that Abraham would be a father of many nations, that the coastlands would see and hear and would call on the Lord. We are the coastlands that Isaiah speaks of. And so Paul says, he says that salvation has come to the Gentiles. And notice what he says in verse 13. I'm speaking to you Gentiles as much as I'm an apostle To the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus to save some of them. Now, here's the process. Israel was hardened, most disbelieved, and so God started grafting in Gentiles, and he started saving large numbers of Gentiles, and the gospel spreading to the nations as God foretold it would, all the way back to Abraham. And then Paul sees another step in the process. It's, that's not the end. If that was the end, the Gentiles who are becoming puffed up as if God has replaced Israel with them would be right. It's not the end. Paul sees a, mis- a mystery in this process. He says, and now I see the gospel going to the Gentiles, and my hope is that it will provoke some of the Jews to jealousy so that they'll want to be grafted back in. They'll see what's going on here. They'll see God at work. They'll see the gospel taking root in lives. They'll see idol worshipers change and turn to the true and living God and be, be, be God worshipers and would be delighting in him and singing his praises. And the question is, for us, when people look at our lives, is there anything about our Christian experience that makes others jealous? It's a sobering question as I thought about this. Paul sees something in this God's method, his plan of salvation. And he says that God had mercy on the Gentiles, and the next step is in order to provoke some of the Jews to jealousy so that they might be saved. And I wonder if people look at our lives, if they would ever say, whatever they have, I want that. That's really what Paul's saying, is that in the process of God gathering his people to himself, people ought to look at you if you're a believer and say, whatever they have, I want that. You know, I'm ashamed when I think about my own life and think about how I'm perceived, how little that's probably evident to people. And as I look out over the mass of confessing, professing Christians in America and even in, even in Reformed churches, how little I can say I see that. You know, this is what drew me um, a month before I was converted to my best friend Stephen is I saw in his life and in his eyes something I didn't have. I saw a joy and a satisfaction in Jesus that I didn't have, and I was trying to satisfy myself with the world, and I remember thinking to myself, whatever he has, I want it. He was drinking deeply of the living waters, and there was something in his eyes, and there was something in his life, and there was something about him that made me jealous for what he had. 
And Paul's saying that in the process of God gathering, that that was part of God's plan. He would have mercy. He would be kind to people who were unbelieving previously and who were hard-hearted and who worshipped other gods. And he would be kind to them and he would have mercy on them. And then Israel, who had been hardened, some of them would see that and would become jealous and they would want mercy and they would be converted. And that happens. And you may not hear about it happening all the time, but it's happening psychologically in the minds of those that God is working in. And my experience with my best friend is the experience that elect Jews in Paul's day would have when they looked at what the Gentiles were getting in the gospel. And so that's the second step. Israel hardened, Gentiles grafted in to provoke Jews to jealousy. And then as the process continues, the Gentiles are warned against pride. Now notice, as Paul turns his attention to the Gentiles in verse 13, and he addresses them very directly, he tells them that they need to remember in verse 15 that if Israel's rejection meant the reconciliation of the world, so when God rejected Israel, he turned his attention to the Gentiles, he says, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Will you not see God's glorious resurrection power at work when he turns back and saves some out of Israel? And notice what Paul says. He says in verse 16, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so, the, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And now he reminds the Gentiles, don't get proud because you have been grafted in. You were once far off. They had promises. They were being nurtured in the cradle of the old covenant church. You have been brought in. You have been grafted in. And notice what Paul says. He says in verse 17, if some of the branches were broken off, And you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Now, I don't think the danger is any of us today saying, man, I really deserve to be God's people and everybody else doesn't. And I really deserve salvation, but the Jewish people, they don't deserve it. I don't think that's a problem today. I think that was a problem specifically in Paul's day, in this interaction. I think the big problem for us today is to see people who have hardened their hearts against the gospel and to get bitter towards them and to get harsh and heavy-handed towards them and in that way be puffed up with pride and think we deserve the gospel and we deserve salvation and they don't. I want to read to you this quote. Sinclair Ferguson says, The kindness of God doesn't lead us to arrogance and self-sufficiency and the demeaning of others, but the kindness of God leads us to repentance, Romans 2.4, to say, Lord, I've sinned so grievously. Have mercy upon me, and the hope of your grace enables me to come to you and say, Lord, I will humble myself and I will live for your glory. And so Paul says in Romans 11.20, If because of unbelief they were broken off, And you stand by faith, do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Ah, but you say, I made a decision. I have the card in my wallet. I can tell you the date. Once saved, always saved. Yes, my dear friend, if you were saved. But the evidence that you were saved is not that you carry the card in the wallet, but the evidence that you were saved is that you keep on responding to the kindness of God you got to listen very carefully, because Paul says this, actually. Notice verse 21, 22. Note, then, the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. You know, a lot of people say Romans 11 is keep your eye on Israel. 
Romans 11 is not so much keep your eye on Israel as keep your eye on yourself. I'm going to emphatically press that home. Verses 17 to 24, the center of this chapter is keep your eye on yourself. Examine your own heart. Are you abiding in the kindness? And I think Jesus Christ is the kindness of God. I think when he says the kindness of God, Jesus is the grace of God. He is the kindness of God. He is God giving himself for us. He is God laying down his life for us, undeserving, hell-deserving, completely unworthy, completely in ourselves, foul and unclean. And God says, I am going to be kind to you. You know, if you had met me before I was converted, you would have run as far as you could the other way. Why didn't God? Not because I was so great. Because God said, I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be kind to Nick in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to extend my kindness to him. And nothing makes unbelievers more angry than the kindness of God extended to them in the message of the gospel. And so as we examine our spirits, Ferguson says, the evidence that you were saved is that you keep on responding to the kindness of God and have a humble spirit to those who are as yet unbelievers. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. My dear friends, Judas Iscariot had a card in his hip pocket, and his card said apostolic treasurer, but he did not continue in the kindness because he never trusted in the kindness. He did not continue in the kindness because he never trusted in the kindness. And he too, as Paul says here, was cut off. Now that means us and our families have been grafted into the people of God. We are the covenant people. God has entered into covenant with us and with our descendants after us. That's the point. Just as he entered into it with Israel, we have been grafted in. He's not saying you can lose your salvation. But he's saying don't get presumptuous. Don't think that in and of yourselves, you deserve this. In fact, I would argue that when we look at others who have rejected the gospel and we have anger and bitterness in our hearts, we are acting exactly like what Paul is warning us about. I'm going to say this this morning. It's going to be shocking. But I venture to say that none of us in this room have prayed for the salvation of one of the members of East. And if I said we should and I could hear your reactions from your minds and hearts, I'm sure I wouldn't be surprised by the revolting idea of that. And yet the Apostle Paul was every bit a member of something like East. He martyrs the first New Testament Christian, and God makes him the chief apostle because God has kindness on the Apostle Paul. God has kindness on the Apostle Paul. And so as Paul begins to unpack, and he continues to unpack this this back and forth of this process, he tells us first that Israel was hardened. Secondly, the Gentiles were grafted in in order to provoke Jews to jealousy. Then he warns the Gentiles against pride, lest they be broken off. And now he tells us that elect Jews will be grafted back in. Notice, he says in verse 24, 22, note the kindness and severity of God. And then in verse 23, even and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief. So if some of them hear the gospel, if God takes away the blindness, if they believe in the Lord Jesus, will they not be grafted in? For God has power to graft them in again. And notice what Paul says. If you were cut from that, 
how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive trees? I think that Paul is writing this as a missionary. And it's remarkable that of all the people that he should turn from and run as far and as fast away, it's the Jews who have been so vitriolic to him and to the gospel, and yet they are the ones he is writing this, that some may be saved. He says that even now, some may be saved. And he understands that God has this this plan and this process, that God is working this process out. God is the great orchestrator of how he makes his mercy known. And then, finally, Paul tells us at the end of this process that this will come to a glorious consummation in both the fullness of the Gentiles and the fullness of Jews. Now, I don't think that that means that every Gentile on the face of the earth is going to be saved. If we take fullness of the Gentiles to mean every Gentile on the face of the earth, and if we take fullness of Israel to mean every Jew, then we believe in the Christianization of the world, and we're post-millennial, and I'm not. And so I don't think the Bible teaches that. I think that what he's saying is that this process culminates. God continues this process in the gospel age until the full number of elect Gentiles and the full number of elect Jews are gathered together in one in Christ. And he, and he culminates in this most difficult verse in verse 26. And he says, and in this manner, your Bible may say, and so... In this manner, this process by which God is gathering together his people, all Israel will be saved. Now, there are three options. I'm going to give them to you. Number one, all Israel is either all the elect within Israel. Paul told us in 9.6, they are not all Israel who are of Israel, but the elect are the true Israel. He said that in 9.6. So he may be referring to the full number of elect Jews who are gathered together to Christ through this process. He may, as the majority of people believe, he may be saying that he's going to save this great mass of physical Jews at the end of time after the last Gentile saved. I, I don't see a chronological statement here. Um, verse 12, a lot of people point to and they say, it says, look, notice their trespass means riches for the world. If their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more their full inclusion? And, and, and then they'll point over in, in the latter verses and they'll say, well, look, it says that until a partial hardening has happened to Israel, verse 25, until the fullness of the Gentiles. And so inevitably the next st- step is then they're all going to be saved. And I don't, I don't think Paul's saying that. That's, a big, that's the big popular option. Lots of reformed people believe that. Edwards believed it. Owen believed it. The greatest theologians in the Reformed Church have believed it. And then there's Calvin's view. And Calvin's view is that because it's talking about the process of how God's going to save elect Jews and elect Gentiles, and he's, going to, he's grafting them into the same tree, and he's creating a new Israel for himself, it's this process by which all of God's true Israel is saved. And the tree, when it blooms, is glorious in all its many shades and all the fruit that it bears and all the diversity and the beauty and the glory of the true Israel. And I'm attracted to that. It's a very attractive thing to me. Whatever view you take, it's going to be good. God's saving all his people. God has appointed this mysterious process by which he saves them. If I'm wrong, I'm going to be very happy. 
If I'm right, I'm happy. This is a great text. If you believe it, you can walk away happy no matter what you take in 1126. If you don't believe, it's not going to make you happy. And so, secondly, let me walk out of this quickly. What's the purpose? What's the point of this? Is this for us to, to sit back and set our eyes on Israel and ask what's going on between Israel and Gaza today? And where does this fit into everything? I don't think so because Paul doesn't take us there. Paul takes us again back to the wisdom and the glory and the majesty of God. It's a crescendo. It's a crescendo. Notice what he says. Notice that after telling us that, that God still does have a plan for Israelites, he tells us, notice in verse 33, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that it might be repaid? You know, when I looked at this tree, this tree of 40 fruits, my first thought was, why didn't I think of that? That's amazing. That's very cool. There was a depth of wisdom that that Syracuse University professor had that I did not have. There is an infinite depth of wisdom that our God has in saving his people even when we can't tell what's going on. Who would have ever dreamed up that God would harden his old covenant people, save a people that weren't his people who were formerly disobedient, have mercy on them, then some of these would get jealous and they would believe in Jesus, that the blindness would be taken away and that he would continue doing that until there's a full number, until that tree blooms in glory. And God's wisdom and majesty is displayed and he shows his eternal purposes and the fullness of all things in the redemption of his people. And here's the big question. The big question is, have you been grafted in? Have you had your eyes open to see the Lord Jesus? Because I think this chapter is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. None of this happens without him hanging on the tree and shedding his blood. None of this happens unless he dies for his people. You know, when I was a very young Christian, I was reading the Gospels and I was meditating on the inscription over our Lord Jesus. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And Luke tells us it was written in, in Hebrew and, and uh, Latin and Greek and and I'm reading, and I'm, I'm, I'm starting to see what God's doing in raising up a new Israel. He's taking two men, Jew and Gentile, making them one new man in Christ. He's grafting us into the olive tree, and, and it hits me. It hits me that one of the reasons why that inscription is written over Jesus is because he's the king of the true Israel from Jew and Gentile all over, all over the world, Hebrew, Latin, Greek. He's the king of the true Israel. And he's going to be praised for all eternity. And here's the reality. This culminates in an eternity of praising him for redeeming all of us out of every tongue, tribe, nation, and language. Should we be seeking the proselytization of Israel? Yes. Should we be sending missionaries to Israel? Yes. Should we be sending missionaries to Gaza? Yes. Should we be sending missionaries in every corner of this earth? Yes, because Romans 11 is true, because God is saving a people who will forever say, you are worthy. Oh, the depths and the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his ways and his judgments past finding out who has ever known the mind of the Lord, who, who can give back to him, who has ever taught him anything. And we fall on our faces 
Because you know what's true of Romans 11 for me is that I contribute nothing to it. And you contribute nothing to it. And every other Gentile and every other Jew contributes nothing to it. There's one person who does everything to make it a reality, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Romans 11, like the rest of Romans, calls us to say, am I trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have I come to him? I wish someone had pled with me when I was younger not to be deceived. I told everyone, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. I did not know the Lord Jesus Christ. I was not born of his spirit. I did not have my sins forgiven. And if I had died, I would have perished forever. I would have been in hell forever. It's the most serious question, not speculating about Israel, not speculating about even your nuances on anything that you might think about, but where are you in this picture? Are you someone that in your heart cries out to God how wise and how glorious you are, how majestic you are, how kind you are? Have you received the kindness of God? Paul says the one application Paul makes in this chapter is remain in the kindness. I'm going to leave you with that thought this morning. Have you ever trusted in the kindness? If so, you need to remain in the kindness. And that means humility and meekness, a sense of unworthiness. I'm going to read these words as we close. It means that we can cry out, Lord, I've sinned so grievously. Who among us cannot say, Lord, I've sinned grievously? Who among us can say, I haven't sinned grievously? Who among us should not fall down and say, Lord, I've sinned so grievously. Have mercy upon me. And the hope of your grace enables me to come to you and say, Lord, I will humble myself and I live for your glory. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we know that there are many other things that we have not touched on, many true and rich things, and yet we need so desperately for you to remind us of your kindness that came to us when we were undeserving. And we have been grafted into that root of the covenant promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that you have brought us near, though we were not your people, that though we were not a people yet, you call us the people of God, and though we had not obtained mercy yet, now we have obtained mercy. And our God, we know that it's all because of the Lord Jesus, your kindness and your goodness in him, the redemption that you have sent us in the preaching of the gospel, Father, we pray that you would make us a people who cast ourselves on the Lord Jesus, who continue in that kindness, who pray for you to work out your plan and who are zealous in supporting missions to see that plan worked out so that you might gather together all your people in one in Christ. Father, help us to be a people that give you glory and honor, who magnify you, who exalt, who fall on our knees, who confess our sin, who cry out for grace, and who long for that same grace for the most hardened and the most wicked, our God, forgive us. Forgive us for not having hearts that are humble and meek. Give us a heart like the Apostle Paul, our God, for even the most hardened and rebellious. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would have mercy on us, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.